0: Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.
1: You're listening to Chicken In on Finance. Willing the good nettle.
2: Bacon could get less expensive. Smartphones can get more expensive. The Astros started the season off like they ended it last year and it's cold. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck and Ann on Finance, brought to you by IIE Financial. IIE Financial willing, the good of another. Visit us online, IIEFinancial.com. I'm your host, Chuck Folkerson, joined by the much smarter than me. Uh, smarter wearing, than I. Oh, see, this is this is my life. Welcome to my life. I was about <laughs> to give you a compliment, but you know what? You're throwing shade. You get nothing. <laughs>
1: I do have a mug that says, I'm silently correcting your grammar. But you I just don't do it silently all ever.
2: the time. Ever. No. All the time? Ever. Hey, I'm a stickler for grammar. Oh, it's so obnoxious.
1: Mm-hmm. 12 years of Catholic school. What you can don't I say? know
2: nothing, okay? <laughs> You, you, as we say in Pittsburgh, yins don't know nothing about no grammar, Nat. Oh, you're not redeeming yourself with the Pittsburgh accent, I can tell you. So the Pittsburgh accent, I think, is one of the best accents on the planet. Most people don't even realize... And by best, you mean worst. No, most people don't even realize that Pittsburgh has an accent. Like, they didn't even know it existed until they hear it. And then... And then they, when they hear somebody say, you know, you, you just can't go down there like that. We're gonna go down the south side. You just gotta get, you gotta get all nice. You gotta look pretty at there.
1: And it's not even all of Pittsburgh. It's really just the valley south of Pittsburgh.
2: Yeah. Well, I make it. I I don't. I really only slip into it if I've been overserved. It's never my fault. I'm overserved.
1: Well, the problem with the Pittsburgh accent is they forget that half of the alphabet exists.
2: Well, there is that.
1: Val- vowels are. A subjective commodity.
2: Well, they run together. But anyway, the reason... Speaking I'm, of commodities. Yeah, really. The reason I'm talking about Pittsburgh this morning is because I I am a... Di- for those that know me, I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Have been since I was about 12. Huge, huge baseball. If, if I could pick a sport to watch, it's going to be baseball 10 times out of 10. Don't know why. It just is. I like to go to the game. I like to sit. I like to watch. And I'm a huge Pittsburgh Pirates fan. And unfortunately... They were about the worst team in baseball for about 20-something years. Legitimately, 20 years. From 19, I think it was 1992 until 2000 and, I'm sorry, 1993 (laughs) until 2013. They didn't didn't win a thing. They did nothing. And this offseason, it just got worse. It just got worse. My misery just continued. They traded away our good players. And they always do, though. I know. They like to rip my heart out with a spoon, but they traded away our best pitcher to the Houston Astros. And now that we live in Houston, of course, everybody—I heard a number of Pirates fans say, "Oh, he wasn't that good anyway, and uh, he's overrated." Yeah, shut up. He's had two starts. I don't know if you—I don't even know if you saw this yet. He's had two starts for the Astros. He's not given up a run yet. He's not given up any runs. He's had two wins, and he's gotten like twenty. 23 strikeouts in two games.
1: And this is par for the course for the Pirates.
2: Oh, I'm, it's just, it's just, it's just further adds to my pain. Although they've started the season off well, I think that that's the just... The Pirates,
1: the Pirates treat their fans kind of like, um, sort of like prisoners in the sense that you, you, you know, you're, you're trapped into being a Pirates fan and every once in a while they slide a little food under the door. A glimmer they, of hope. Yeah. And make you, make you start to actually appreciate your captors.
2: Oh, it's then that's a great way I believe there's to a syndrome. There's like a name
1: for that. I think it's the terrible. Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. So, so, I'm, that's I'm, what it's like to be a Pirates from, fan. From,
2: from, you know, from the famous movie Die Hard. That's where I learned. That's where I, I guarantee you 89.7% of people that know the Stockholm Syndrome know it from the movie Die Hard.
1: Mm, probably,
2: which is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. But I digress. So what happened last week in the markets? So, uh, you know, we talk about uh, we talk a lot about different things on the show and they kind of kind of drag us all over the place. But we're going to transition over a little bit to what happened last week in the markets. And, you know, last week in the markets was essentially characterized by violent moves. There, there's really no other way to put it. It seemed like every time President President Trump hit the send button, the market moved violently and and I think it's interesting to see, you know, kind of what happened with every every time he hit the send button. So, and this is primarily centered around the Chinese tariffs. That's really what it is. It's centered around the Chinese tariffs. And we had a pretty huge move down last week on on Monday. And on Monday we had this humongous move down where the market's broke out of a of a little bit of a uh, you know, it kind of had had chopped around sideways, and then this huge move down on Monday scared the the pants off of everybody, and then uh, it it kind of hit a little bit of a bottom and popped up, and then it, as it popped up on Tuesday, people said, okay, maybe it's not going to be so bad, and then overnight Tuesday night, President Trump came out and said, hey, guess what? More tariffs, and we sank again. Before then, on Wednesday, having a humongous up day, humongous up day. Higher than when Monday, higher than from where Monday fell. Yeah, higher from Monday's beginning. And then, oh, President Trump tweeted again and we fell. And then we rallied back up. And then on Friday, people said, you know what? I'm not sure what's going to happen over the weekend. So then there was a huge sell off Friday in the last hour and a half of the market. And this is not a good sign for the markets in general.
1: Well, and I, I wonder though, you know, when we say that the 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 market is characterized by volatile moves and violent moves and all this kind of stuff, uh, is are we really is that just a relative statement? Question mark. And by that I mean we are so the market is so high that. When we have some corrections, yeah, their their market is swinging 700 points in one direction and 500 points in another, but we are at unprecedented high levels. And so if we were at 10,000, you know, as a couple of years ago, and it would not be the same at, you know, that 700 swing and 500 swing, the percentages are a lot smaller. So is this just a normal swing for the market that is... It's 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 normal but for us who maybe in our brains stuck back at that 10,000, you know, 12,000 sure. mark when a 700 point move was huge, you know, are just applying that same mentality to when the market is at 25,000 instead. Well, Do you know what I
2: mean? Yeah, I think that the point number scares people, right? When they hear a 1,000 point move in the Dow, it is something that scares them. Well, that 1,000 point move in the Dow Wasn't on a percentage scale all that big, but we're moving two and three percent a day. That's ridiculous. That is a lot, and um, and and so two point we moved two point one nine percent down on Friday, a two percent move in the S and P. And the interesting thing is, is that we had four days last week, four of the five days last week, where the S and P moved more than two percent. See, a 2% move in the S&P may not sound like that big of a deal, but it's very un it's it's unheard of for the market to move 2 and 3% that many days in a row, that often. And what we're seeing now is what's referred to by a lot of professionals as what's called price shock. So price shock is when you get violent moves one direction with slower recoveries the other. Now, if the market's going up, you get price shock in the upward direction. Big, big spikes up. Big spikes up. Which little tiny pullbacks. Which we had for pullbacks. like three years in a row. We had that for many, many years. And now we're getting price shock the other direction. Violent move down. Pullback takes a bit longer. Uh, and sometimes we'll even get back to where we were. Like if you, the NASDAQ... The Nasdaq actually got higher than than its January highs, you know, back in early March, um, you know, because the, the S and P never did get back to its January highs. The Nasdaq did get higher than its January highs as it recovered from its February price shock, but it's now it's now fallen sig- significantly from those all time highs. And that all time high was found on I think it's February the twelfth or Jan- excuse me March the twelfth. It's been a month, basically, of straight down for the NASDAQ. And so now, as an investor, I've, I've been saying for the longest time, you, you, we've got to, we, we, can't over, we can't worry too much about what's happening every, every single day, every single week in the markets. Well, now it's starting to get a little bit more hairy. Um, and the reason it's starting to get a little bit more hairy now is simply because we're unable to hold on to gains. The inability to hold on to gains is really the scariest part. It's one thing to have big sell offs with with long uh, with long uh, I call them long lower wicks right areas where price drops down and then comes back up. Well, that means that we're unable to hold on to selling pressure, and that is that has happened characteristically. In February, we had a big move down, but then we were unable to hold on to that downward move, and it popped back up. Well, now it's the other way around. Now, every time we rally, we're unable to hold on to the rallies. And it's making the market a bit more skittish for investors in general. As an investor, you've got to really have a lot of, I'm going to use the phrase uh, intestinal fortitude. You've got to have a lot of intestinal fortitude. To be able to be comfortable. Now, what can go in place of intestinal fortitude? How about a plan? Um, and, and as long as your plan allows for knowing where's my line in the sand to get out if it goes below, then I don't need to worry quite as much. You've got to be willing to give some. If you're not willing to give some, you shouldn't be in the financial markets at all. But what you do want to do is have that some line identified and know where that line is and where you're going to get out if it goes against you. So what we're looking at now is that the market is, is is significantly retreated off of its highs. And where is that line in the sand? Where have you placed it? Do you know what that is? If you don't know what that is, uh, if you go to our website, iiefinancial.com, we've got a section in the media, uh, in the media menu that's uh, select videos. And there's a video on line in the sand. And we talk a lot in there about how do I draw my line in the sand? Why does it exist and what is it used for? And when we have this price shock, these violent moves in one direction, the biggest mistake you can make is not having a plan. The second biggest mistake you can make is not following that plan. And so knowing where your line in the sand is will help you to identify the best opportunities for you in this market condition. The key is is to follow it, pay attention to it, and know where your line is. So let's turn our attention to the news headlines that are driving the markets. But before we dive into the news headlines that are driving the markets, we like to start with my favorite segment of the week.
1: News of the weird, 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 weird,
2: weird, weird, weird. weird, weird. That didn't work?
1: No.
2: I, I purposely did a different cadence. Oh. That's because of my lack of rhythm. So speaking of rhythm and dancing and dancing in the streets... Last week on our News of the Weird, we talked about a story from the great state of Louisiana. And our story from the great state of Louisiana was probably my favorite News of the Weird story of all time. It was about the Alligator Baby Reveal Party. Well, for today's News of the Weird, we're going back to Louisiana. When you think of Louisiana, what do you think of?
1: Mardi Gras.
2: You think of Mardi Gras, right? I think most people, when they think of Louisiana, they think of New Orleans. I
1: mean, other than my sister and her family who lives there. But.
2: Right, right, right. We think about those people, too, <laughs> No question. But I think most people, when they think of, 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 of Louisiana, New Orleans is the city that pops their mind, right? And it becomes Mardi Gras, and it becomes the saints, and it becomes hurricanes, right? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, and, and I'm sure then there's the rest of the food, the alligators. Uh, but Minor when, details. Right. When you think of Mardi Gras... What do you think of?
1: Well, it's got to be the beads.
2: Yeah, we're gonna say the beads because that's probably all we should say. It's a family show, right? <laughs> um, when we think about Mardi Gras, we think about the beads and people throw beads from floats. Now, I will tell you, your sister says that 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 Mardi Gras is way better when you're not on Bourbon Street. Is well, that- I
1: can attest to that. She, yeah, yeah, because we, I, I was actually, I got the opportunity to ride on a float and throw out beads in a parade that was not. I've never actually never done Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street, no interest. But when you go out and celebrate the parades that are outside of Bourbon Street in the actual neighborhoods and in the city of New Orleans itself, they are fantastic. The floats are beautifully designed and there's a great family atmosphere. And, and so we were throwing beads to all kinds of people and kids and how, all kinds of did, stuff. It was how awesome. Did,
2: how did you get on the float? I don't remember this.
1: Honestly, I don't even remember.
2: I, I remember yep, my si- drinking too much.
1: Not at all. I, I remember my, my, my sister and um, some of her sorority sisters were, were able to get onto a particular float in Metairie, Louisiana. Right. And uh, I went down, she invited me down to celebrate Mardi Gras with them, and I was able to be on the float, you know, as a, a bead thrower. You were a bead thrower. So so fun.
2: Now, yeah. when you were throwing the beads... Did you ever wonder what happens to those beads?
1: No, it honestly never crossed my mind. Okay. I mean, because people clamor for the beads that are thrown onto the ground.
2: Right. They, I mean, they they fight over them. We went to a, we went to a Mardi Gras parade here. Because and- there's
1: many different levels of beads, which a lot of people don't understand. When you right. go out into the neighborhoods outside of, of Bourbon Street, like the real Mardi Gras, when people are throwing beads, there's the normal little beads that are, you know, maybe two cents a piece. But then sometimes you get the premium beads,
2: which premium,
1: premium beads, which have maybe little shapes of, of, you know, with different themes on them. There might be like saints beads or I don't know. There's rubber ducky beads. There's, there's right. all kinds of different, uh, you know,
2: fun themed beads. Well, and, and I got a purpose to this. I promise I'm getting to a point. And the reason I say this is because they just recently had a four month project that was in response to heavy flooding in the city in August. And it was because the city's drainage system was full of stuff. So they had to clean out the drainage system. And wouldn't you know... Was that, it filled with sand like Houston is after the hurricane? Uh, I don't think it's quite as filled with sand. I thought, no. although I'm sure there's plenty in there. What was no, it no, no, filled no. with, Chuck? They found Please tell us. 46 tons of beads. 93 Thousand pounds of carnival beads. Are you kidding me? It is amazing. Ninety-three thousand pounds of carnival beads. Now that made up a very small percentage of the seven point two million pounds of trash pulled from clogged catch basins along a five-block stretch. So think about this for a minute. Five blocks, seven point two million pounds of trash. That means that for each block, city block, there was about 1.4 million pounds (laughs) of trash. And for each city block, there was approximately 18,000 pounds of beads. See, the next time you go to Mardi Gras, you need to think about for a minute, if you throw beads, where do they go?
1: I wonder, like... What are they? What are they going to do with it all? That's a tremendous amount of trash. Can they like clean them off, or use them? <laughs> uh, you know what? They're, they're,
2: if they're if they're the good <laughs> beads, I think you probably should. Yeah, I think that they should. So anyway, there's one story that I think is kind of interesting from uh, and that was from the Huffington Post. Here's another story from Market Watch, and the Market Watch story is titled "Turning to the Market: Cheaper Bacon, Pricier Smartphones: How a Trade War with China Could Hit." your wallet because i think that's the thing that we need to ask ourselves as investors you know as an investor you hear that there's these chinese tariffs that that may happen right 100 billion in tariffs on chinese goods if president trump is seeking that additional 100 billion in tariffs well if we're looking at that then what are we going to pay fees on and and what is it going to affect you as an investor And I think that is the question that a lot of people don't know. Um, And and, you know, there's there's a reason behind behind why to do it.
1: Well, yeah, Trump, I mean, Trump, President Trump says he wants to protect U.S. businesses and intellectual property. And I think it's something that has gone for many, many years where it it hasn't been that way. And what he's doing is proposing a 25 percent tariff on a list of goods from China
2: and and this list of goods, if you will, uh, and you can find this list of goods pretty easily. I mean, it's on it's on USTR.gov, USTradeRelations.gov. I mean, he put mm-hmm. the and it's a gigantic document, which I know it's hard to believe that a government document is uh, is gigantic, um, but it's a gigantic government document with uh, lists of goods. And why they're and why they're they're being done, and there there are things in there that you wouldn't even you know most of us as individuals aren't even going to think about. Right? It's a lot of it is chemicals and and different, different chemicals, kinds of drugs. Yeah, drugs that are coming in um, that that people are are going to be are going to be messing with vaccines, vaccines, medications, all those things that we as individuals aren't going to be really affected with all that much from a buyer, right? But then there's sim- simple things, right? Like appliances and um dental cements and other dental fillings, right? So will your dentists purchases become more expensive causing your trip to the dentist to be more expensive? Will um antifreeze? Antifreeze, right? The the things to kind of fix your car and and a lot of it is around iron and steel. Iron and steel is is a very big one on this list and iron five, six, seven, many pages pages of just iron steel and an aluminum and aluminum. aluminum. Um, but then it's also, you know, motors and engines and all these different things, pumps, a lot of things that used to be made in the U S that's really what it comes down to. Um, a lot of things that used to be made in the, in the U S that are no longer really made uh, in the U.S. Yeah,
1: even uh, household appliances like dishwashers, refrigerators. Yeah,
2: dishwashers, refrigerators, parts of fire extinguishers. I mean, just, you know, self-propelled levelers and scrapers, caterpillar engines. I mean, there's so many things. And the whole point behind this, why are we doing this? The reason we're doing this is that is that we want to find a way in order to increase U.S. manufacturing. That's really what it comes down to. The goal of President Trump is that he's trying to increase U.S. manufacturing. And this is what he said he was going to do in his – in his his – campaign. He yeah, said he ran on the fact
1: that we he wanted to increase industrial manufacturing because as a country we don't really make anything anymore. We've become a consuming nation as opposed to a producing nation.
2: And and a lot of the concern there's a a lot of the concern is that things like clothing and shoes not on the list, right? So things like clothing and shoes and end-use products are not on the list. But there are tariffs on certain machinery that is going to make American made products more expensive. So, for example, uh, we have a we we have a we have a pool and in our backyard, we've got a pump that pump in our backyard. If somebody puts a brand new pool in, well, that pump is now going to be a more expensive component than it was six months ago. Right. So now will that will that pump the, the person who's making the pool system now has to pay more for that particular pump because the tariffs have gone in. So the the argument is, is that it will make certain American made products more expensive if those American made products are relying on Japanese or excuse me, on Chinese uh, parts, on Chinese components.
1: But at the same time, I think the argument that he's trying to make is, yes, there will there will be those components may be more expensive, but it will require people in the United States to actually make those things because we are trying to increase industry and manufacturing again. And so if more people are working, then and he already did, he did the tax cuts first, so people have more money in their pockets to actually spend on these items, then the system should grow together.
2: Right. And so and that's really the unknown at the moment. Right now, the unknown at the moment is how is it going to affect everybody concerned? And so there is some prices on some U.S. products could actually get cheaper. Um, produce being one of them. Trees, uh, nuts from trees being one of them. Things where the Chinese may come back and say, well, we're going to impose tariffs on our imports as well. So the balance now is going to become as an investor, excuse me, as, as a consumer where you spend your money and what you're looking for. And I think that overall, you know, is it good for the economy? Is it bad for the economy? What's great is it's still open for debate and we're not going to know the true answer to that until the dust completely settles. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about housing and housing has a tremendous impact in our economy overall And I think it's great to talk about housing, not just here in the U.S. It's actually kind of neat because this week we've had a pretty interesting uh, perspective from the other side of the pond.
1: Yeah, we have my cousins are in from England and they live about an an hour north of London and uh, my their children live in East London. And we were having a conversation at dinner last night about the housing situation in England as compared to housing prices in the United States and what the differences are and how expensive things are and et cetera. Et cetera. And just for a, a comparison, a what is considered a small suburb of London where in East London, where you can basically grab the uh, the underground. Within five minutes walking distance, and and be into the heart of where many 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 people work in central London. It's like a twenty minute underground train ride. Uh, a a two bedroom apartment there will run you about six hundred thousand U.S. dollars, and it, as compared to the cities in the United States, that's it's pretty on par. Um, and right. one of the things that now, that's city living. Obviously, there are places in the United States where you can get a two-bedroom apartment for far less than 600000 U.S. dollars. Sure. But we were talking about the reason for the inflated housing prices, not just in London itself, but outside of London and in the surrounding suburbs, like one of our favorite places to go in St. Albans. Right. Um, and he was talking about how the reason for the inflated housing prices is the housing shortage. And one of the reasons for the housing shortage in England is that they have these areas, they call them green areas, green. Did he call them green belt areas? Uh, Which is just just green, green, green green space, green space. And what that is, is it's agricultural land that the government has deemed unbuildable. So, or, They're not allowed to build, you know, they're not allowed to build on this green space area because it's allotted specifically for agriculture. And there's been a lot of pressure on Parliament to infringe on that green space to build more because there aren't enough uh, there. There is a housing shortage. And so obviously, if the demand is high, so is the price.
2: Yeah, the price is going to continue to rise, and and really that's that's in any market, right? In any market, the further out you are, the the further you go uh, outside of a city, the 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 less expensive that property is going to be. And I don't care whether it's whether you know wherever there's supply and demand, right? It comes down to supply and demand. Well, interesting thing about the supply and the demand in the U.S. is that the supply and the demand in the U.S. is not governed as much as it is in the U. Like like we talk about to to your cousins about what happens with the supply and the demand in the UK. And the reason is that the UK is an island and it's pretty, pretty built up and there's there's not as much growth space. Right. We have plenty of space here in the US to build. No, no question. Right. I mean, we live 25 miles out of the downtown part of Houston and we're still technically in the city of Houston and they're building homes north of us further away from the city. And so the question now becomes just how far away does somebody want to live to a city center? Right. But I think that the big difference in, in housing prices that nobody tends to look at is that the value of your home is not in the bricks and the sticks. The value of your home is more or less in the interest rate that you pay for your loan, right? When you think about how people get a loan, when, when, when we think about a loan, what do most people do when they decide what they want to get a loan? They,
1: uh, they look at their monthly, what their monthly payment's going to be. Right.
2: They look at their monthly payments. So when we talk through that, let's just say theoretically, if you work backwards, see what you do is you work backwards and you start with what your monthly payment is going to allow you to be. Right, so you know, let's let let's just assume that you have a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Well, a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage, if you have an interest rate of three and a half percent over fifteen years, so a three and a half percent interest rate over fifteen years, a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage, your monthly payment is going to be fourteen hundred dollars a month. When you say most people are getting a thirty-year mortgage, I think most people are. So I said, say thirty. I think you should switch it to thirty. So if it's a two hundred thousand dollar if it's a $200,000 mortgage and your interest rate, well, if you're doing a 30 year, it'd be a little higher. Let's say your interest rate's 3.75 at 3.75 on a 30 year mortgage, $200,000 mortgage, 30 years, you're going to pay nine twenty six. So maybe let's just say theoretically that your, 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 the amount of money you can afford is thousand dollars a month. Let's say you can afford thousand dollars a month. Well, if the interest rates are at 3.75, that means that you can afford a $200,000 home. At $926 a month. What does that not include? What's that taxes, $926 does not include? Doesn't include taxes. Doesn't include insurance. Utilities. So I, utilities. So I think a lot of break. people, when they go in to buy a home, they need to factor in the cost of taxes and insurance as part of their monthly payment. So in reality, if your monthly payment is if you're if you're willing to spend $1000 a month on your home you might have to take it down to 900 a month right so now my $200,000 maybe i can't afford a $200,000 home it's a $190,000 home which brings my payment down to 880 right so now i got an 880 payment at 375 but let's say that the interest rates rise now why would the interest rates rise you say because the fed starts moving interest rates now my, remember my payment is 880 on a $190,000 home, if I need to keep my payment at 880, but the rates go to 4.25, if the rates go to 4.25, now all of a sudden I'm at 935. So my payment has now gone up higher than what my budget allows me to be. So now I can no longer afford $190,000 home. I can only afford $180,000 home. That takes me back down to my right price. So think about that for a minute. By interest rates going up, because people in the U.S., we, we primarily buy things that we can afford. right? We look at the monthly payment. That's how cars are sold. right? Cars are not sold by what the cost of the car is. It's what your monthly payment. How much can you, can, can you afford? Same thing happens in the housing market. You go and say, this is what we can afford per month. And if the interest rates rise, what does it do to the total mortgage amount? It lowers it. Well, if the if the mortgage amount is lowered, you either have to, A, come up with more money for a down payment, or, B, buy a cheaper house. And if, you buy che- and if people keep buying lower and lower houses because interest rates go up and up and up, what does it do to the value of the housing market? Drops it. Drops the housing market. So I think that what a lot of people don't tend to look at is how are interest rates going to affect their overall mortgage? So... What does Powell say? And I think it's interesting to look at um, at our Fed chairman, Jerome Powell. And Jerome Powell, um, you know, he's, he's taking what he calls a patient approach.
1: Yeah, the FOMC's patient approach, as he calls it, has paid dividends and contributed to the strong economy we have today, says Powell. Um, the Fed chairman said... Going slow on interest rate hikes has also reduced the risk of what he calls, quote, an unforeseen blow to the economy, And quote, that might have pushed the economy into a recession. And the Fed has hiked interest rates five times since December 2015. We, we've talked about that, yeah. you know, a couple of times before. And we're expecting three rate hikes this year in 2018 with a potential fourth. And uh, the central bank has forecast a total of of, uh, of three hikes for for this year
2: and i think that what when you look at the the number of hikes that may happen each time those rate hikes occur they can affect the price of your mortgage you know looking at what the mortgage costs are the value of your home is not in the bricks and the sticks sure the supply and the demand of the home value is super important but um what's what's also important is the interest rate that you're paying and the interest rates have been so low that people have been able to buy bigger homes. So there's a, an article on MarketWatch that says buyer traffic rising as real estate agents report concern over mortgage rates and inventory. So the, the point is, is that a lot of real estate agents... There is an in there's an there's an increase in buyer traffic around the country because more people are afraid of rising mortgage rates. So they're, they're kind of feeling like, listen, if I'm on the fence as a as a home buyer, it's got that concept of, well, if I'm on the fence, I want to make sure that I get in before the prices go up. Right. And so it it, it has an instantaneous sense of urgency um, in there and and and. It's a uh, it's it's another thing about where are they going to live in the U.S.?
1: Yeah. And buyers who can't afford to move across the country for more reasonable prices. uh, there, There was a with consideration to that, there was a service done by Credit Suisse. And they found that more house hunters are going back to the tried and true way of landing more affordable housing. And it's what they call, quote, a greater willingness among buyers to move further out to the periphery, end quote.
2: Yeah. So just move further away from the city. It's known as drive until you qualify. <laughs> <laughs> so and and it's, it's what am I willing to go? How far outside of the city center? Um, Am am I am I willing to to go in order to, to kind of move? You well, know, yeah, in-
1: and and that that's not. I don't think that's a necessarily a new concept. I mean, I grew up in Northern New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan, and I can't tell you how many people would take planes, trains, automobiles to get into Manhattan, but they wanted to. They they couldn't afford to live in the city itself, and so they would live in New Jersey or even Pennsylvania. They would drive. Uh, from Pennsylvania across the whole state of New Jersey, which is not all that big, but when you're considering a daily commute, it's far. And just to get into Manhattan because they, couldn't afford to live anywhere else, and plus the taxes were lower. You know, just over the border in
2: PA. Well, yeah, and what ha- what's happening is a lot of a lot of home buyers, and there's there's actually in this study, there's an there's an index about Northern New Jersey. It says many buyers are interested in purchasing homes outside the state, and they they move all the way to North Carolina. North Carolina is like the Garden of Eden if you're from if you're from the North. So <laughs> just just kind of consider what are the Fed's interest rate policies going to do to the value of your home even if you're not a home buyer. So an interesting article came out this week uh, by Jack Bogle. He's the founder and retired CEO of Vanguard Group. Everybody knows Vanguard, right? Vanguard is pretty much the largest mutual fund holder in the world. Um, And Jack Bogle has more than been around the block. He's 88 years old, and he had a 66-year career. That's a long time, and he has something interesting to say, and he had a, uh, he had a quote uh, this week in MarketWatch, and his quote was, I have never seen a market this volatile to this extent in my career. Now, that's only 66 years, so I shouldn't make too much about it, but you're right. I've seen two 50% declines, I've seen a 25% decline in one day, and I've never seen anything like this before. Close quote. What does that mean to you? Uh
1: I I think I, I'm always skeptical whenever I see uh sort of like expletives or inflammatory statements like this is the biggest or I've never seen this or you know, like apocalyptic like statements because I think that you did a whole article about uh, the 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 bubble in markets and the bubble pattern, right? And and the market. This is my personal interpretation, but the the market is driven by humans, and since the dawn of time, human nature hasn't really changed. So with the with with humans driving the market, I I think it's. In, not only inappropriate, but unhelpful to say things like "I've never seen this before." N- not that we, you know, we we can't take wisdom from people who've been in the market, but it's not very helpful to say that, and and I don't think it's very accurate either. I think that we we are at unprecedented levels in the market. And I, I said this at the first segment, and and so seeing, you know, one percent changes in in a day or two percent changes in in a day um, are you know look back to what when we were at 10,000 and so it was there a 200 point correction and what did people say then we've never seen 200 400 point swings before well yeah we did and and we're seeing them again so I I I don't get really excited when people make these, you know, apocalyptic type type statements to be honest with you. Yeah. I sort of just yawn.
2: Well, and, and and he is a name that is very well respected in the in the entire financial industry, right? And he's been touting buying fic, uh, buying indexed Uh, Funds instead of actively managed mutual funds for for pretty much as long as I've ever known anything about him, and he talks about actively managed funds are probably a mistake that a lot of investors get into, and they're sexy and there's a lot of cool things about them, but you're going to be better off with the index fund, and and that's that's a topic for another show and another time, and that's kind of the way we that's kind of the way we manage you know client accounts at uh, at IIE Financial is kind of using the index fund. As a better alternative to to, you know, actively manage mutual funds. But that that aside, um, Bogle's got a, a, a great point with the turbulence in the market is pretty is pretty big. But the question is, why does that turbulence exist? And though we've had, like you just said, these big moves. 50 points up in the S&P, 572 points down in the Dow and you know all these big swings up and down, two percent, three percent, one percent, all these you, you know these big swings that get people uh, all nervous up. The other thing that Bogle says is he says volatility matters to the traders and it doesn't really matter to the investor. If you're an investor with a long-term view, uh, it, it's almost like uh, I saw a meme the other day and it was actually pretty funny. There was a, a little, there was a gigantic pig. I guess somebody had bought a pot-bellied pig and people forget that those pot pigs grow up. And they had a gigantic pig and this pig was laying on the on the floor in somebody's house sleeping. So this pig is asleep, right? Gigantic, probably a 250 pound pig. And there's a little puppy. And the little puppy keeps jumping on it, jumping on it, jumping on it, jumping on it. And the pig ain't moving, right? The pig's just sitting there. And the, I think the point of the meme is investors are kind of like the pig, there's all this stuff happening around them, and they're just not overly concerned with it until something big enough makes a move, right? If you think about it, if you think about the daily swings of the market Until up and the down. butcher
1: rings the doorbell. Right.
2: Butcher <laughs> rings the doorbell, that, damn pig, that pig's going to move, right? That pig's out. And the point is, is that until we get that line in the sand that we talk about broken, Until we get, you know, because individual day to day volatility, you've got to have some if you're listening to the market every day, you know, then 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 your investments are probably going to suffer in my experience over time.
1: And I think, too, just like the how it seems like now everybody has an opinion about everything, um, because we we have. News channels, especially cable news that have to fill 24 hours a day with stuff as opposed to prior to the 60 minutes phenomenon. uh, You know, when that came out a few decades ago. Right. More than a few decades ago um, when when news was basically just an hour. Sure. Right. And you got the basics. You got the most important stuff. Ideally, you would get not as biased as you get now. Um, you know, type of of information. Now, so many more people have so much more access to stuff that's coming out that the news in news media is 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 having to fill twenty four hours a day sure. with with information. And how does that affect the market? Well, we're emotional creatures, and so when when things come out in the news, we have at the touch of our fingers, our, our accounts. And so I think it's pretty logical to expect that, that there would be a lot more volatile swings because it's not like the, 90s when, the 1990s when you had to actually call your stockbroker and say, sell my shares of XYZ stock. Literally on your phone, you can see a a a, a news. In a news story or a tweet or whatever it happens to be and pick up your phone and hit sell, sell, sell.
2: And make a decision. And
1: make a decision. And more often than that, more often than not, that's an emotional decision, which we would highly discourage. But I think that that's a, a large reason for these huge swings that we're seeing now is they are very emotional swings. And that's why I don't get very excited when people say, we've never seen anything like this before.
2: Right. Well, and, and we've had, you know, we've had a, a about 50 days Since our last all-time high in the S&P. It's been about 50 days. And this is the third longest such pullback since 2013. The third longest period of time between uh, between all-time highs. And... The, the, the last two, one was on the US, the Brexit and the US election. There was almost uh, it was about 70 days between all time highs. And the one before that was the year of 2015. It was quite a long stretch, almost a, almost a year, 300 days between all time highs. So though we've only it's only been 50, it's only been less than two months since we had a new all time high in the S&P. It's it's giving investors cause for concern, but so far, this current slump is very normal, uh, according to a number of professionals. And really, one of the things that I take a look at is, for those of you that, that ever look at charts of the, of the market, I do look at price charts quite often. And our current price pattern mirrors, almost mirrors identically, the price patterns from August to September of 2015 i mean it is it is eerily eerily similar uh, in its current shapings and so if we get you know another thrust higher another rally higher the interesting thing to see is is that going to be on increased volume is there going to be more more people that are jumping behind that thing and when i say increased volume that means more institutional buyers and sellers that decide okay time to jump in and to, and to play along in this game. And if they do, that's really where we'll see us go a bit higher. And I've said on more than one occasion, I think the S&P has more more room to run, more room to go higher. And this pullback, when you run a marathon, you're going to take you're going to take stops in between, well, unless you're your sister, uh, unless no, you but she to even had to
1: refuel. You yeah. know, you got to stop to refuel. And even she said the first marathon she ever ran, she didn't stop to refuel. And she missed her target.
2: Right. And so the market, I think that's that's what it's doing. It's just It's just relaxing a little bit, slowing down. And I think there's one more thrust back in this market. I'm not really ready yet to throw in the towel, if you will, right? I'm not ready to throw in the proverbial towel on the market. And I think some people are. The bigger fear for me is that selling begets more selling begets more selling. And as we chop along sideways and more and more people start to to get fear, what I don't want them to do is to panic and to overreact. And like you said earlier, our news, where it used to be a a one-hour news cycle is now a 24-hour news cycle. They've got to fill 24 hours of news. I would argue and say it's not even news. Mm -hmm. It's, It's spin on activities. That's really what it is. It's not news it's spin on the activities that have occurred somewhere around the world. And it's it's how the person says it will be the way that it is spun.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think too, just as a, as a final point, we need to make sure that, you know, if, even if the market is reacting a little bit uh, more with more volatility than it has before, all that means is we adjust our, plan to accommodate that and to stick to the plan and not think remember in your article you talked about how there is a phase in this bubble where it talks about how everyone's convinced we're in this new paradigm so we need to make sure that we're objective and and following st- having a plan and then having someone help us stick to the plan
2: i can't say it any better myself thanks for listening to chuck and anna finance we'll see you next week Bye.
1: IIE Financial is an investment advisor representative with Symphony Financial, a registered investment advisor. Charles Fulkerson is an investment advisor representative with IIE Financial and Symphony Financial, LTD Co., Annie Fulkerson is not registered nor affiliated with Symphony Financial. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Symphony Financial. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. IIE Financial does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.
0: Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by...
1: We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land Gift Shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop The Holy Land Gift Shop. Bringing the Holy Land home.
0: I learned how many people we could help and how good you feel after you have helped others. I know Lent is about giving, so I want to give.
1: These kids are talking about CRS Rice Bowl, a Lenten program known by generations of Catholic families. Children love it because they experience different cultures and gain a lasting impression of the people they are helping. You can bring CRS Rice Bowl into your home and experience the joy of seeing your children or grandchildren find new meaning in Lent. Visit crsricebowl.org
0: to get started. Rice Bowl inspired me to pray more and to pray for those who are less fortunate. The Cincinnati Catholic Men's Conference is back. Tickets are on sale now for Saturday, April 28th, at the Taft Theater at CincinnatiMen'sConference.com or call 513-214-1534. The speaker conference roster is being hailed as one of the best lineups in the country. In rare appearances, come see Father Mitch Pacwa from EWTN, the man motivator. Father Larry Richards former Moeller High School and University of Notre Dame head football coach Jerry Faust, and the big celebrity keynote, Baz Ruten, UFC world champion, MMA world champ, and movie star. The conference theme is what it means to be a true Christian man in today's society. Don't miss the incredible day of motivation, spiritual benefit, and fellowship with men from all walks of life. Get tickets now at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. That's CincinnatiMensConference.com or 513-214-1534. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at BreadboxMedia.com.